0: Salvatore Ferragamo, read by Susie Menkes, Silks, Jewels and Curious Beasts. There is no limit to beauty, no saturation point in design, no end to the materials a shoemaker may use to decorate his creations so that every woman may be shod like a princess and a princess may be shod like a fairy queen. There is no limit to the materials I have used in these fifty years of shoemaking. If I list a few, it serves only to highlight those that are not mentioned. I have used diamonds and pearls, real and imitation, gold and silver dust, fine leathers from Germany, Britain, America, and wherever else they may be found. I have used satins and silks, lace and needlework, glass and glass mirrors, feathers, the skins of ostrich, antelope, kangaroo, leopard, lizard, python, water snakes, and even more weird and strange reptiles. I have used fish, felt, and transparent paper, snail shells and raffia, synthetic silk woven instead of raffia, raw silks, seaweeds, and wool. I have used petit point and petit point raffia, taffeta, and manila hemp, nickel alloy and iridescent kid, velvet and linen, webbing and suede. I have used beads, sequins, Nylon, which is stronger than leather, do not be put off by its appearance of flimsiness, and transparent paper straw, which is string covered by transparent paper. I have decorated shoes with microscopic beads and with exquisite embroidery. I have dyed shoes and painted them. I have wrought cunning designs with twists and twirls, bunches and bows, whirls, squares, circles, and every angle known to geometry. In my Hollywood days, I would rummage through the antique shops, picking up here a Spanish shawl, there a Chinese brocade, or a yard of Indian silk, or an embroidered gown, or a chair with petit point back. There is literally no horizon to bind the shoemaker in chains, nothing that need prevent him from realising everything that is within his creative orbit. Sometimes an idea must await the discovery or the invention of new materials, like the metal heels and the glass soles. Sometimes an idea waits new process in preparation and dyeing, like the sea leopard skin from the Arctic Circle. Sometimes an idea is forced into the mind by circumstances, like the wedge heel and the transparent paper. There is a 25-year-long story behind the use of sea leopard skin for shoes. I used it first in 1928, soon after I had left Hollywood and started in Florence. The skin could not then be dyed, and so I could make shoes only in the natural colour of the fish, decorating its yellow-beige tint with a variety of patterns. It became popular. Within a few months, sea leopard-skin shoes were being worn all over the world. Mm -hmm. Then the trouble began. Not only could the shoes not be dyed... But no known process could remove the smell, and the smell got worse the older the shoes became. Sea leopard skin quickly disappeared as an object of fashion. For years I persevered with attempts to find methods of eliminating these disadvantages, and at last, just before the war, a German tannery produced a skin for me from which all trace of an odour had been removed. Unfortunately, the war then arrived and during the hostilities, the factory was destroyed. After the war, I tried again. Three years ago, a Copenhagen firm succeeded not only in removing the smell, but also discovered how to dye the skins. The results are marvellous. You can obtain in Sea Leopard a variety and richness of hues that cannot be obtained with even the finest leathers. To celebrate the discovery, I organised a party in Rome with Sophia Lorraine as the guest of honor, and Sea Leopard was launched on its all-conquering career. Now the only difficulty lies in obtaining the number of skins I require. It takes one and a half fish, three sides of skin, to make one pair of shoes, and there are not enough sea leopards in the sea to satisfy the demands of fashion. Which of all materials is my favorite? None, rather all. The material I work with today is my favourite today. Its possibilities fascinate and intrigue. I see all its manifold uses in design and style. But tomorrow there will be something new, and the day after tomorrow something newer still. Nevertheless, if I like them all, I must still confess to a recurring and fond regard for the use of kid skin. It is a beautiful leather, smart and graceful, and with a fine, gentle feel to the fingers. It fits more like a stocking than a shoe. And because it is not voluminous, it never makes the foot look bulkier. It is not only the designer who obtains joy from it. The wearer finds it soothing because it is porous and so allows the skin to breathe naturally. It is one of the healthiest materials you can wear. Just now it is enjoying a vogue because of the widening desire of fashionable women to take advantage of the new technique of painting designs by hand on kid, and, incidentally, on satin as well. The shoes are bought plain and taken to an artist who will paint on them the designs of your choice, your favourite pet, playing cards, famous scenes from London, Paris, New York, Rome, or any other city in the world, trees, birds, flowers, castles, anything you fancy. The effect is bewitching, and the cost remarkably cheap considering the high standard of artistry and the fact that, no matter how ordinary the style of the shoe may be, the paintings give all the glamour of an exclusive creation. As I write, hand-painted kid and satin shoes are just becoming fashionable. Within a year they will be all the rage. But enough of materials. Perhaps it will be more fun to remember a few styles and the people who wore them. I remember the first pair of needlework shoes made for Lillian Gish, the pair of lace shoes for Dolores del Rio, the shoes worn by the Maharani of Cooch Baha and by Marlene Dietrich. They were decorated with thousands of tiny glass beads from Venice. Every bead was sewn on by hand and each pair took months to make. The cost to the customer was $300. I remember the shoes studded with a mosaic of tiny pieces of different coloured reflecting glass. My mosaic mirror shoes, which Carmen Miranda, among others, wore so effectively. And the special boots I made for Mussolini. He was always in too much of a hurry to lace his boots, so his order insisted no boot laces. I did not want to make him a pair of closed-in boots like Wellington's, because constant use would destroy the line of the mask so I split the leather in such a way that his foot would slip in easily and the leather would then close around his leg. I remember the skiing boots I made for Claudette Colbert from the skin of unborn calf, the only pair of shoes of that type I have ever made. I remember Elisabetta and the variations on the theme which I sent over to England soon after the war when members of the British royal family including Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, Queen, then Princess Elizabeth, and Princess Margaret, began to buy through my retail agents in London. Elizabetha was a high-heeled shoe with an ankle strap, buckle, and butterfly-shaped vamp, executed in white satin for dining in, gold for dining out, and black antelope for less formal wear. I believe that some of my creations went into Princess Elizabeth's trousseau, I remember the Maharani of Kuch Bahar's order for more than a hundred pairs, including a luminous shoe I called Nymphia, made of white canvas water-lily leaves impregnated with phosphorus, and two pairs decorated with real pearls and diamonds. Her Highness sent me a bag of pearls of all sizes and another bag of diamonds, also of different sizes. I made one pair of shoes in green velvet with a spiral of pearls running up the heels, and one in black velvet with a diamond buckle and two straight rows of diamonds running down the heel. These shoes I would not trust to the mails or to messengers. I took them down to her ship myself. I remember the fantastic requests of Ava Peron, one of the most intelligent women I have ever met. She had the wildness of the Andes in her feet and the wildness of extravagance in her demands. There were some skins which are uncommercial because they're too rare or too heavy or cannot be produced or too small. Ava Peron dismissed all difficulties. She must have the skin she demanded, not only the fairly common llama, but armadillo, lizard and every rare reptile. Some of the shoes had to be painted with oils because the skins would not take dye, and others had to be dusted with gold and silver. They were the most extraordinary shoes I have ever made and the prices I was forced to charge were astronomical. Eva Perron, who came to me at the beginning of the fashion for embroidered shoes and insisted on buying them with jewelled heels. And I remember the panic over the wedding shoes for beautiful 15-year-old Princess Ira Fustenburg. The princess, who has phenomenal good taste for one so young, originally selected a pump in white satin. But two days before the wedding in Venice, because the weather was extremely hot, she decided to change her mind and wear a pair of sandals of a special design. She could not come to my salon, and she could not send her feet, but in 24 hours I had to create the style, make the shoes, and deliver them from Florence to Venice. On the morning of the wedding, one of my assistants took my racing engine, Alfa Romeo, and, driving at what must have been record speed, arrived in Venice only a few seconds ahead of the hairdresser, who was to put the finishing touches to the princess's coiffure before she left for the ceremony. The shoes, I am happy and relieved to say, fitted perfectly. But I have jumped ahead of my story. I must now go back a year or two and describe the changes of the past five years.